Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Macheon Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Macheon Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, this is Brad Lewis with another in the Blood, Sweat, and Smears series from Macheon Diagnostics. I wanted to talk today about a very hot subject right this moment, but the COVID vaccine-related thrombosis. I'd like to be able to give you a set of initials that we're going to be calling it by, but that at this point still remains a bit unclear. It's been called the thrombosis thrombocytopenia syndrome by both the CDC and the FDA. It's been called the vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. It's also been called the vaccine-induced prothrombic immune thrombocytopenia, VIPID. I think at this point, VIT, the vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or perhaps even vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, but VIT, V-I-T-T, seems to be catching on, as does thrombosis and thrombocytopenia syndrome, TTS. Any of those may be searchable terms at this point and maybe terms that you'll hear talked about as in advertising for the many webinars which are beginning to pop up out of many of the groups that have a vested interest in this, the CDC, FDA, the American Society of Hematology, International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, all of them have had presentations along these lines. So what is this thing that we're talking about? So it's an interesting and unfortunate phenomena, fortunately very, very rare, which has occurred following adenoviral vector vaccines. So both the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine have shown up with this. Both of these vaccines do have an adenoviral vector presenting a spike protein to the host ultimately. What part of this causes this phenomena remains entirely unclear at this point, but sometime shortly after the vaccine, it typically takes four or five days before the earliest cases show up, typical for HIT and other uh, antibody-mediated processes like this, and has been seen out as far as about 20, 24 days. I think ASH has been suggesting that you consider this disease out to about 30 days after the vaccine, although I believe most cases, or maybe all cases reported, have been within about 24 days. When this disease presents, it typically presents with the symptoms of a thrombosis, so that initially people were saying you should be careful if someone presents with a severe headache. The reason for this was that about half of the cases initially presented as cerebrovascular sinus thrombosis, a very unusual thrombosis. But the other half have been other things, many of them other kinds of atypical clots, splanchnic mesenteric artery clots, for example, hepatic vein thrombosis, but also DVTs and PEs in, in a minority of these cases. Initially, it was said to be in women, their middle ages, and in fact, about two-thirds still appear to be in females. Um, but there have been cases in males which appear to have been vetted. The age range is getting broader, not surprisingly. I believe the published cases have been between about 20 and 55. I did hear about a case that may have been as old as about 80. So at, at this point, anyone who's had the vaccine in that four to 30 perhaps day window who presents with a symptom suggestive of a thrombosis ought to be considered. These cases also have presented often, almost always with thrombocytopenia and typically have coagulation abnormalities, a DIC-like coagulation presentation. So that too is, should be tip-offs to begin to think about this. Initially, it appeared to have a very high mortality 
um, within one series, every all the initial cases dying. But now that uh, it's being recognized more quickly, the mortality has dramatically dropped off in that same series. No one died uh, once the diagnosis began to be made expeditiously. I said earlier on, this is a very rare problem, and I'm going to just say that again. That's an important point to bring up, obviously, with your with patients. Yes, this is real. Yes, it's a little bit scary when it happens. Yes, we don't understand it entirely well yet, although we're getting better at it. But it's much, much more rare than the side effects of the disease itself, which also, by the way, causes thrombosis and DIC. The important point to remember is its rarity. How rare is it? Initially, there, it was said that it was about one in a million. It looks like as people begin to look more closely, it could be as common as one in 100,000 conceivably. Last data I've seen was about 223 cases out of 34 million AstraZeneca uh, injections. So again, still fairly rare. Also worth remembering that some of these thrombotic things happen unrelated to the vaccine. They're also rare, but they are going to begin to occur as you see large numbers of patients uh, having this vaccination. But as we'll hear in a minute, there is a, a fairly unique laboratory presentation for this problem. When these cases first began to present with their atypical clot presentations, not arterial and venous, but with atypical presentations of all of them, as well as the associated DIC and the often very severe thrombocytopenia, as well as the, the occurrence within a, a window that suggests an antibody-related uh, mediation, the uh, connection was made to autoimmune heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Now, as you know, HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, is a subject we've talked about before on, on these podcasts. Um, it also is rare and occurs in patients typically who are receiving heparin or have received it very recently. It can also occur in a delayed fashion after the heparin, and it can be seen with other related chemicals, so other polyanions, penicillin polysulfate, hypersulfated chondroitin sulfate, for example, have been associated with an HIT-like phenomena. It can also be seen following infections and after some surgeries as what appears to be an autoimmune phenomenon, antibodies against the platelet factor four polyanion complex, and those antibodies then trigger thrombosis by a mechanism very similar to that seen in HIT. Because of this conceptual connection, early on, a number of centers in Germany, Norway, and the US and England began to look at the possibility that. HIT serologies might be useful. And indeed, that has turned out to be true. Why these antiplatelet factor IV polyanion complex antibodies occur remains unclear. Is this a function of a change in the immune system itself induced by the, the vaccine? We do know that antiplatelet factor IV heparin antibodies are very common in blood donors, 20% in some series, very common in patients who are undergoing uh, surgeries like heart surgery, where they're going to receive heparin. Um, so we do seem to have some of this antibody in us broadly, and it, perhaps it's being unmasked in some way by these vaccinations. Or is there a cross-reacting antibody or even something about the, the adenovirus or the spike protein that's inducing direct platelet factor IV uh, antibodies? At this point, that remains unclear. We do know that the adenovirus itself can sometimes bind to platelets and cause activation, but in the amounts that it's getting, that should not be a clinical problem in its own right. As I mentioned, the problem has been seen in primarily only in the vaccines which contain the adenovirus as a mechanism for inducing spike protein antibodies. So what about the laboratory diagnosis of DITT or 
TTS. So the beginning is obviously to do the routine tests that would pop to your mind. You're going to be doing a CBC. Uh, you may well want to check an LDH. You're going to look at DIC parameters. You're going to look at D-dimers, PT, PTT, fibrinogen. And what's being seen in general is the fibrinogen is often low. The platelets are variably low, but typically in the you know, kind of the five to 50,000 range. So it's variable, but typically significantly suppressed. D-dimers have been elevated, but not in the usual range that we see in patients who are having thrombosis, even with severe thrombosis. In patients, even those with fairly limited thrombosis in their extent have had very high D-dimers. In uh, one study uh, looking at the AstraZeneca vaccine, the median D-dimers were in the 31,000 range with a range from five to 80,000. Again, very high uh, D-dimers. That too should be a tip-off since it's not the D-dimers you might expect in a similar sort of a setting. Some have, some have asked, uh, what about lupus anticoagulant? Interestingly, lupus anticoagulants do seem to be fairly common among patients who've had the VITT syndrome. The relationship remains entirely unclear at this point, possibly, presumably un- irrelevant. Perhaps patients who have these antibodies or have a propensity to make these antibodies also have a propensity to make antibodies against the phospholipids involved with lupus anticoagulant. We see something a little bit like that in HIT. At this point, again, uh, still unclear. Once you've suspected this diagnosis because of thrombosis or thrombocytopenia in the right time period, and then looked at D-dimers and platelets and, and have what looks like a consistent picture, the next step, which you needn't wait to do, but the next step conceptually in diagnosing this would be to look at the HIT-like testing. That is, you're going to look at platelet factor four heparin antibodies, antibodies against the platelet factor four heparin complex, just like we do in HIT. This test will sometimes be called an HIT test or an HIT ELISA or platelet factor four ELISA or platelet factor four antibody screen. Most of you know it as the HIT screening testing. There are ways to enhance this testing to make it even more sensitive, but in almost all series, this testing has not only been positive for all patients so far reported with this disorder, but it's been positive at fairly high titers. So typically we say that this test is positive when the optical density is more than one. Most of these series, the optical densities are running in the three and up range. So very high uh, positivity in this ELISA test. It appears to be a very good test and the high titers are much more than one might expect to see in you know, other sorts of settings, blood donors, for example, who can uh, sometimes have this kind of these kind of antibodies floating around. The only other thing I would mention about this antibody testing is that the ELISA tests seem to work extremely well. A number of the rapid uh, antibody tests or rapid screening tests, the hemocyl and the Accustar, for example, uh, chemiluminescence assays, have not reliably been positive in this disorder. You do want to stick with this point, uh, an ELISA. There may at some point be enhanced ELISAs available, but again, at this point, they don't yet seem to be necessary since we're seeing strong positivity in almost everybody reported so far with this disorder. And again, a theme that I've alluded to, but let me just say it outright, this is very much a work in process. I could be back in a week or two giving an altered vision of of what's going on here, but this is the way things stand as of today. The next question that comes up after you get the, the positive ELISA testing again, raises the analogy to HIT. In HIT, in the settings where we see HIT in hospitalized, often ill patients receiving heparin, the incidence of ELISA positivity is very high. 
so that one would not consider it a real diagnosis of HIT until you had confirmed it with a functional test, an SRA or a heparin-induced platelet aggregation, the HIPAA test. In this disorder, that does not seem to be true. In this setting, the incidence of lysis is presumably not as high, although we don't have a good handle yet on the incidence of positive ELISA testing in this population. The high lysis, the association with the clinical syndrome and with high D-dimers, low fibrinogen, low platelets, this presentation is pretty much diagnostic. In fact, I believe most people at this point would suggest that if you see the clinical presentation, you would begin to respond and move towards treatment even while you were waiting for the ELISA to come back. Once the ELISA is positive, many people would consider that, and I'm one of them, would consider that to be the diagnosis at this point in time. The ISTH has suggested that if the ELISA is positive, you should move on to confirmatory testing. Again, there have not been reports, as far as I know, of false positive ELISAs. So if you have the right clinical situation, you have a positive ELISA, at this point, I think I would suggest moving on with therapy, especially since the therapy is itself not particularly toxic. The ISTH would argue that you should do functional testing. If the functional testing is negative, they would suggest rethinking your entire approach to this patient. Not an unreasonable thing to do, I suppose, but you could be doing your rethinking even before you make the diagnosis. If it looks like it's VITT in the right setting and I had a positive ELISA, nothing would dissuade me at this point in time from proceeding with, with treatment. One of the other issues with functional testing is as in HIT, the functional testing appears to be quite specific perhaps, but still not, not as sensitive as the ELISA is. And you don't want to be missing cases of this disease at this point in time as we're just beginning to get our hands on it. There were negative HIPAA tests done in some of the series. Most of these became positive when the testing was repeated using a different platelet donor. And it is fairly common in most labs, as in ours, use more than one platelet donor for an HIT assay, HIT-like assay, or platelet factor four HIT-like functional assay, because we do know that platelets do have somewhat variable responses. So lastly, the question is, who cares? It's nice to make this diagnosis, but why does it matter? Well, at this point in time, I have to say we don't entirely know what the optimal treatments are, but a couple of things come to mind. Although there clearly have been patients treated with unfractionated heparin or with low molecular weight heparin who have responded well, I think most of us would suggest, again, making the analogy to HIT, that you should not be using heparin to treat these patients. That's not generally a huge loss. There are relatively few situations where heparin is needed in the situation like this. We have a number of other, obviously, non-anticoagulant uh, heparin, just like we do in HIT, and you can use our Gatraban. Presumably, NOAX will work well in this setting. I probably would not use Coumadin because of the initial uh, transient hypercoagulability associated with that, but any of the rapid onset anticoagulants would be fine. So again, probably at this point, I would not use heparin. One series out of Germany, there were a few patients who received platelets and heparin who then proceeded to do poorly. Whether that was related to the heparin or to the platelets, again, remains a bit unclear. But again, in analogous to HIT, at this point, I would probably not use platelets casually, although since bleeding can also be seen in these patients because of the associated thrombocytopenia, it's something that I would use, I suspect, if it seemed to be clinically warranted. Lastly, much like in HIT and in other immune-mediated processes, you can block the FC gamma receptors to some extent. With IVIG, has been extremely effective in vitro in blocking antibody binding. The IVIG clinically appears to be effective, and at this point, I believe everybody is recommending that it be given um, in this setting. Again, not a lot of data, 
We're still very early in the course of this disorder, but a fairly benign thing to do, and it makes very good clinical sense. It doesn't really have, other than the rare risks of anaphylaxis and volume overload, doesn't really have a lot of significant downsides to it. So does it matter to make the diagnosis? Yes, it matters because we need to get this data. So probably having a low index of suspicion for doing the clinical testing. I suspect we don't yet understand the full range of presentations. The ones that have been picked up have mostly been atypical clots, in part because an atypical clot happening in a young, healthy woman after receiving a vaccine would raise everybody's antennas. But more routine thrombosis in older patients perhaps would not raise the same kinds of antennae, and perhaps these patients aren't being ex- being screened as well. So I wouldn't, at this point, be screening broadly to make the diagnosis, but also because when you make the diagnosis, you would then know to anticoagulate and probably not use anti heparin-like anticoagulation. And lastly, most of these patients probably should be started on IVIG if they have thrombosis. On that note, there will be more to follow. This is uh, still a, a very interesting work in progress. So again, I'll see you sometime soon at the Blood, Sweat, and Smears podcast for Mechion Diagnostics. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Mechion Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to blood, sweat, and smears at machiondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Machion at Twitter at MachionDX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.